The scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It is, it is good to be with you on this uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we're continuing this week uh, looking at uh, just a text uh, that I, I've chosen that I think is, it will be helpful for us as we enter the new year. Uh, next week, we're entering into a series in Ruth uh, that I'm really excited about. And so just so you know where we're going uh, preaching-wise, that's what's happening. Well, this morning we heard already from 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. to uh, the story of Paul and Corinth, in its, in its broad brushstrokes, if you can say it like that, can be found in Acts 18. And, and really, it's a story that has uh, every element of a Hollywood blockbuster, right? Uh, Paul comes to Corinth, we find in Acts 18. Now, Corinth, if you can envision this, is this port city. And at the top of this port city is this temple to, to Venus. And, and, and underneath the temple and serving in the temple are all these, these female prostitutes. Uh, and those female prostitutes would come down at night and they would roam the city of Corinth. Corinth was a, a lavish, sensual place. Uh, Corinth makes Las Vegas look like Abbotsford, right? Like this, like this, is, like this is a crazy... If you're from Abbotsford, I'm really sorry. I'm actually not that sorry. Lord, uh, Corinth, rather, is, is, is this, this, this crazy place. Further, uh, in its broad brushstrokes, we see in Acts 18 this, sort of this classic underdog story. Right? Paul arrives in Corinth with another couple who have also just moved into the neighborhood. And immediately, uh, they get to work. And they don't get to work like evangelizing like the mayor or courting the societal elites. But instead, they just start practicing their trade together. Just working. Uh, Paul goes to the synagogue on Sunday, and it says in Acts 18 that he is opposed, reviled by the Jews there. This story has an unexpected twist. Having been opposed by the Jews, Paul then goes to the Gentiles, and here, amongst the Gentiles, he sees much ministry fruit, much ministry success. This story even has a supernatural element. In the midst of ministry success, Paul is encouraged to continue his public ministry in a vision he receives from the Lord. Uh, this story even has a courtroom scene, like all good movies do. Paul is brought before the Roman courts by the Jews on the basis of his teachings about Jesus. And in a stunning move, uh, the court essentially grants Paul his religious freedoms. If all we had were these, these broad brushstrokes... These, these highlights of Paul's ministry in Corinth, we could leave with a bit of a, a triumphalist picture, couldn't we, right? Here's mission. Here's how it's done. Look at Paul. He did it. Man, that looks easy. To summarize, Paul comes to terribly wicked city. Paul has great success converting many Gentiles. 
Paul gets vision from the Lord that he will protect him. The Jews bring Paul to court. Paul wins landmark case for religious liberty. Like if I was sending out a missionary and this is the report that came back, I'd be like, money well spent, right? In its broad brushstrokes, it is a grand sweeping tale that would fit comfortably on the storyboards of most Hollywood directors. But praise be to God this morning, we don't just have the macro, the, the, the big picture of Paul, Paul's time in Corinth. Indeed, we have the details. As we move from the macro to the micro, the details of this story should surprise us. See, you've already been told in these broad brushstrokes of Acts 18 that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks that Paul was in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And, and maybe this is just me, but I picture Paul uh, reasoning, uh, persuading, right, teaching, uh, as him standing boldly in front of people, you know, winsomely using cultural illustrations, uh, employing his impeccable preaching and teaching skills. I picture his reasoning, his persuading, his teaching uh, to have won most people over. I picture Paul sleeping well at night knowing that he was gifted, knowing that he was able, knowing that, that even if he wasn't feeling it, he could still do it. And yet we read this morning something that should, should blow our minds. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, the Apostle Paul, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Excuse me, Paul, I want to say, right? I'm not sure you understand how things get done, how things happen. Here's a book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People, and you should read that. And, and, and maybe, Paul, th- th- this, is, this, is, this is how you should do it, because surely it was not that you were with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling that did it for you. This morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, I want us to explore how we think about how we understand and how we live into power. Power. As we prepare to enter a new year, if you've heard any advertising at all, you know, uh, tis the season uh, for promises, right? Right? Join this health club for $99.99 a month and you'll get ripped, right? I just joined a, a, a rock climbing gym, sorry, a bouldering gym uh, with another guy here in, in the community. First off, I am so weak. Second off, it is so humbling to have like be struggling on the bottom of a wall and have like a 14-year-old girl kind of like scurry on past you. Right? It's a very humbling experience. Uh, you know, it, it's a season for, for, for starting new things, for, for resolutions, right? Promises from banks about what people would think of you, how they would look at you. If you just took a leap of faith, you just got that mortgage, right? From beauty lines, on and on they go. All of these promises holding out hope for more control, more of a leg up, more power in your life. So the start of a new year is a good time to consider power because based on how we answer the questions that come out of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 concerning what power looks like, uh, who is it for, and where do we go wrong? Based on how we answer these three questions of what power looks like, who is it for, and where do we go wrong, uh, I think how we answer these questions, I don't think this is hyperbole, this will shape our entire year. 
everything we do this year, again, I don't think this is hyperbole, will be shaped. We'll we'll look a certain way based on how we answer the questions of what power looks like, who is this power for, and where do we go wrong. So let me pray this morning. I want to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God would open the eyes of our heart this morning uh, to repent of, of worldly conceptions of power and embrace the power that meets us in, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Can, can you pray with me? Jesus, I confess this morning that no turn of phrase... Um, No witty comment, no clever thought can win the hearts of those here who do not know you. And Lord, we ask that for those here who don't know you, we ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, come uh, and allow them to see you and to know you. Lord, we think of those of us who do know you, Father, but perhaps are mistakenly, sinfully walking in our own power in our own strength. Lord, I ask that again by your Spirit, you would grant us the ability to repent of that. That we might know you this year, Lord. That we might walk uh, in your power. uh, This power that looks like weakness at times. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. I thank you for this time. Amen. If we can, if you have your Bibles with you, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 to 18. I want to go back a bit and kind of frame uh, our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 to 18. We find Paul saying this to the church in Corinth. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Before we come to chapter 2, before we hear of Paul's the own experience of being amongst the Corinthians, uh, we find our reading today in the broader context, in, in, a, in a bigger argument, uh, in a bigger sort of parallel that Paul wants to draw between worldly wisdom and, and godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. And here some background might be helpful. Again, Paul founded the church in Corinth. He came to an unlikely people with an unlikely message about God dying on a cross, and by the Holy Spirit, many are saved. Paul then leaves Corinth, and and as he's leaving, uh, some other teachers move in, and soon a division breaks out amongst the church. Now, there's much that could be said about this division, uh, why it happens, how it happens, how we resolve this division, but that's not the point uh, this morning that we have before us. Instead, what we see highlighted in chapter 1 and 2 is the showiness of these teachers who have moved into Corinth. It's their flashiness. And you have to imagine, before television, before the internet, before radio, there were orators, right? Trained rhetoricians who could hold people in the palm of their hand with every word they spoke, with every turn of phrase. So the Corinthians then would gather to hear these men speak, not necessarily about something, but to hear how they spoke. Content 
was secondary to delivery. And then when, when content was considered, if it was considered at all, Paul says that the Jews only sought signs and the Greeks only wanted tight, logical arguments. So instead of catering to their felt need with tips and tricks, magic shows, uh, arguments that would scratch the itch of the philosophers, Paul offers the only thing we have to offer as Christians. Jesus Christ crucified. We heard it already, didn't we? And when I... And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, Paul said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the testimony of God that Paul brought plainly to the people of Corinth is the simple message, the simple message of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Think about this. Uh, the ancient world's best rhetoricians, they're all jockeying for the attention of, of, of the crowd, all, all, all jockeying for their applause. And Paul just stands up, excuse me, and says something much like what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Picture Paul here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. You can hear people that want more, right? Right? Keep on going, Paul. Are you sure? Maybe, maybe a little flash of smoke in your hand or something. Maybe a little spice it up a little bit. Simple message. Jesus Christ, born, taking on our sins, dying on the cross, raised on the third day. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I, I can already hear uh, the objections being raised in your mind because they were mine as well at one point. Is Christianity then a religion of fools? It's just kind of for simple people. I remember growing up in a church, actually, where functionally that was, that was believed amongst the, the preaching team. And so the Bible was reduced to a bunch of tips and, and, and tricks and, and sort of, you know, how-tos. Is Christianity a religion for fools, for, for simple people? And to which I would say, yes and no. Hear me out. No, because as maybe you perceive by now, if you read any of other uh, Paul's letters, Paul is a, a master, a master at laying out uh, coherent theological arguments. Uh, just one book uh, previous, we find the book of Romans. There's this tight theological argument throughout. The condemnation then of, of worldly wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is, is not, and hear me here, Christ City, is not a sort of anti-intellectualism. Rather, Paul is intending to communicate that every thought, every pursuit of knowledge, everything that we know must come under the reality of God and his power, specifically how God has revealed to himself in us, uh, sorry, has revealed himself to us in Jesus hanging on the cross. 
every thought, every pursuit of knowledge is not sort of dismissed or, or pushed to the side, but rather we look at everything now through the lens of seeing Jesus Christ crucified. See, the rhetoricians wanted to locate power in their personality, in their delivery. So is Christianity a fool's religion? No. We should not resign ourselves to ignorance. Indeed, Romans 12 tells us to be transformed, not by the ignoring of your mind or the shutting off of your mind, but rather by the renewal of your mind. But yes, in a sense, it is also for fools. Yes, because, as Paul's already said, those whose only hope is in this age, in this stuff, in this life, in other people, who Paul calls the perishing, they will never accept the message of the cross as sufficient. It's not enough. I need more. And we know this, right? Just as it was foolish to speak of Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Jesus' imminent return, when, when, when Paul was in Corinth, so too, as you well know, is it utterly bizarre, maybe even foolish, to speak of these things as 21st century Vancouverites. Maybe you've been there before, sitting in a Starbucks or, or J.J. Bean or, or cooler coffee shop, uh, and, and you've been staring at the person across the table from you and you're sharing the gospel with them, and there's this moment of like, they just have no framework for this. Like, this is totally foreign to them. I, the other day I was at, at, at physio, uh, and I was talking to my physiotherapist about, about Jesus, by the grace of God. And I remember talking about Jesus, and I could see it on his face. Like, th- there's no framework for, for what I was talking about. What, what do you mean I could suffer and yet still have joy? But I don't have that thing anymore. I don't have that person anymore. How could I have joy in the, in the midst of that? And, and what is Jesus, the guy who lived all that, all that time ago, what does he have to do with right now? Perhaps it's in those moments we, we feel most like aliens, exiles, strangers, foreigners here. And so yes, in a sense, to those who are perishing, Christianity then is a religion of, of fools. But the question isn't, is Christianity a religion of fools? The question is, what does power look like? See, for the Christian, true power comes to us via a crucified Lord who then empowers us by his spirit that we might in turn pick up our cross and imitate him. That we too might see the kingdom of God break through, not as we assert ourselves, not as we gain Twitter followers, not as we build ourselves up, but rather as we die to ourselves. It's this this paradoxical reality at the heart of the kingdom of God. If then, we're going to see God move powerfully in our city, in our neighborhood, in our homes, in our own lives in 2018, it's not going to be because we've somehow made it happen. It'll be because the crucified Jesus was readily on our lips and glaringly evident in our service. This is how we will see God break through in our community, in our city, in our own lives this year. It will be because the crucified Jesus is readily on our lips and glaringly evident in our service. 
uh, last Palm Sunday in, in, in South Vancouver, uh, we talked a bit about being a theologian of glory and, uh, versus being a theologian of the cross. A theologian of glory versus a theologian of the cross. Uh, theologians of glory, Carl Truman said, assume that there is a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God is. They look at power, they see it in their homes, in their workplaces, in the media, in politics, and assume uh, that God understands power much in the same way, except just to a, a higher degree, just, just, just more of it. The theologian of glory certainly doesn't go out deciding to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The theologian of the cross, however, looks at Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, hanging on the tree for my sin, for your sin, and says, how do I understand power? Indeed, how do I understand everything in light of this? So quite unlike the rhetoricians of Corinth, power for the Christian looks again less like asserting ourselves and more like asserting Jesus. Less like us trying to make palpable and appealing a message that is inherently, inherently hard to digest. Listen, what we win people with is what we'll win people to. So if we start peddling a sort of a soft Christianity, a sort of Jesus will make you feel better, you know, he'll come alongside what you're doing and sort of empower your dreams, then, then we've won a bunch of people who actually haven't heard the gospel. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, listen to this. This is the gospel, that, 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 you, that you might die to yourself because Jesus has died, right? It's, it's not, a, not, not a mode of self-fulfillment. It's not, not a thing you can add, not a thing you could tack on. But because what Jesus has done, because what Jesus has accomplished, we too can now follow him. And following him, as we were talking about this morning, doesn't look easy all the time. I was talking with Fred this morning. What was it? Peter was allegedly crucified upside down. John Wycliffe strangled and burned, right? If we miss the simple fact that God has chosen to act most decisively, most powerfully in history, not by snapping his fingers or by sending a CEO type or a warrior type, but by sending his son to die, it is not hyperbole to say that we will miss all the Christian life. That's what power looks like for the Christian, following Jesus as we take up our cross. At this point, the question then, who is this power for, should be obvious. Well, it's, it's for the Christian, right? The person who's following Jesus and taking up their cross and walking with him. But if we look at 1 Corinthians uh, 2 as a whole, Paul zeroes in on one big monumental truth about the person who is now in Jesus. And that's that this person is now filled with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 3-4, it says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
If you're here today and you've come to see Jesus Christ crucified as the power of God to save you, it's because something miraculous has occurred. The Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see that. And now, full of the Holy Spirit, not only do we see the world apart from worldly wisdom, we are able to minister, to serve it, in a way that worldly wisdom never could. I, I don't know if you do this, but I w- I've been writing down resolutions sort of as, as I begin this new year, and again, half of those will be gone in probably a few weeks' time, and I know that. But one of the ones that I want to persist in, that I pray by God's grace I'll persist in, is that I would love my, my wife and my two boys, uh, not with the love that, that this world has to offer, not with just you know, a, a pat on the back here and there, not just, you know, with some helpful advice here and there, but with, with a love that is empowered by the Spirit, that is sacrificial. So we're able by the Spirit to, to do these things. And to understand this further, we need to ask, what does Paul mean when he says that he brought the message to the Corinthians in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power? If you have the NIV, it says, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I think this translation is more helpful. If we could summarize uh, this, an answer to the question we just asked, we could answer it like this. In seeking to persuade the Corinthians of the truth of the gospel message, Paul is, is taking all of his chips off of, off of himself. Right? If you think of you know, playing poker, right? he's taking all the chips off of himself and going all in on the Holy Spirit being able to, to change people and indeed save people. He's taking the chips off of his own rhetoric, his own ability his own cleverness, and saying, listen, if you're going to get saved, uh, it's a spirit that's going to do this, that's going to move this way. See then, the, the demonstration of the spirit's power is the Corinthians' very salvation itself, right? In our salvation, this powerful thing happens. We're brought, as Paul tells us in Romans, from, from death to life. And surely... For those of us who say we don't see the miraculous anymore, surely if you've seen someone come from death to life, like, like that's miraculous, right? The greatest miracle of our age, I, I can't think of a, of, of a better one. But as 1 Corinthians will continue to tell us, there's more. Spirit-empowered salvation came with an ability to do spirit-empowered evangelism. Spirit-empowered salvation came with an ability to do uh, spirit-empowered gifts, building one another up and and lifting Jesus high. Spirit-empowered salvation allowing us to persist in weakness. Paul says to the church in in Galatia, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Christian, by definition, you are one in whom the Holy Spirit of God lives. And he, that is the Spirit of God, he has been given to you, not to lift you above the troubles of this present age, but to empower you to live in them, through them. And I want to belabor this point. And I want to do that by asking a question. How did Jesus do all of his miracles? Have you ever thought about that? How did Jesus do all of his miracles? And some of you are kind of worried right now, like, well, Jake, he's Jesus, right? You know who Jesus is? He's the son of God, so that's how he did his miracles, right? He's the son of God. Think about this. 
I want to propose to you that in laying aside his divine rights as he took on human flesh, Jesus' signs and wonders that marked his ministry were done by and in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just after Jesus' baptism, we read, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Upon returning from the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Concerning Jesus' teaching ministry, we're told, For the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God, for God gives a spirit without limit. Jesus walked with his disciples in the everyday of life, full of the Spirit. Jesus prayed and sought the Father, full of the Spirit. Jesus taught with clarity, conviction, authority, full of the Spirit. We then, weak people, weak people who have renounced the power of this world to accomplish anything meaningful in this life, and we, weak people alone, have living inside of us the same power God the Father exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. Ephesians 1.20. Let me ask this again. What sort of power are you, am I, are we going to be pursuing this year? Do we want the ugly, the gospelless power that is marked by showboating, marked by self-promotion, a power peddled by politicians, by self-help gurus? Or do you, Christian, want to live into the power of the Holy Spirit, the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? And I hope at this point we're all like, yes! Right? Obviously, yes. Of course. So where do we go wrong? How come when we talk about this, sounds good on a Sunday morning, right? Yell a bunch, talk about the spirit, talk about power. But it seems so hypothetical, vague, right? What does this mean? What does this mean? Further, why do we feel so powerless in this gospel ministry that we've been called to? Because this is ultimately what we are empowered for. And to answer this question is to, I think, get at the heart of the matter. Look again at 1 Corinthians 2.5. Paul says that he came preaching the message of the cross in the power of the Spirit. Why? Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of God, sorry, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Christ City Kitsilano, hear this. More than anything else, Paul, ever the good pastor, wants the Corinthians to taste of a life that draws, not from the limited wells of human knowledge and wisdom, but from the never ending fountain of power that is God's Spirit living inside of us. Or let me put it in a form of a question I once heard another pastor ask. Have I, have you, and have we constructed lives for ourselves that don't require the power of God? Have we constructed lives for ourselves? Have we built a life that is so precise, so regimented, that we actually don't require the power of God? Do we live 
so comfortably, do I live so comfortably that whether God's power shows up uh, in my life and in your life is actually neither here nor there. I could take it or leave it. I'm not all that dependent. Are we radically generous to the extent that we're dependent on God's power in our finances? Are we radically hospitable to the extent that we're dependent on God's power to love and serve people? People who aren't like us. Are we radically bold in our proclamation of the gospel, in our sharing of Jesus, to the extent that unless God moves in power through our words, uh, it'd be hopeless? Do we serve our families in such a radically self-sacrificial way that we need the power of the Holy Spirit minute by minute, day by day, week by week, to sustain us, to strengthen us, or we'd collapse? Or have we constructed lives for ourselves that functionally don't, doesn't require the power of God, doesn't require the power of the Spirit? And you know how we can tell if we built this kind of life for ourselves? It's if a non-believer can kind of peer into our life, can look at what we're doing and say, oh yeah, that seems reasonable. Nothing strange here, right? Paul's just said that, that, that to those who are perishing, the cross, which should shape our lives, it is foolishness. And so if an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know Jesus, can look at our life and say, yeah, that's reasonable, that makes sense, we should be concerned. So how do we do this? If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you simply begin, as the Spirit opens your eyes, to believe this simple message that, message that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That all of our ugliness, my ugliness, your ugliness, was paid for in this amazing act of God's wisdom. If you're a Christian here this morning and you've come to realize that the life you've built for yourself is based on a very worldly understanding of power and that you, like I am guilty of so often, actually don't live in such a way that you need daily God to show up in power, then the place to begin for us is in repentance. Ask God for forgiveness. I, I want to make some time as we respond in just a bit here uh, for us to wherever we are, whether it's, it's standing or whether it's uh, at the back or, or even here by the cross. Uh, I want to make some time for us just to kind of kneel wherever we are and spend some time in repentance, if that's you this morning. But repent knowing that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you on the basis of what he has done. This is not condemnation. No, no, Jesus has borne our condemnation. Rather, it is invitation. Christian, we should also pray that we might desire to live into this power. Uh, in Ephesians 1, 15-20, Paul prays on behalf of the church in Ephesus, and it's my prayer for us. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And look at verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The fact is that this desire to experience God's power working in and through us needs to begin, I think, with a decision. We will never desire this sort of power uh, for ourselves or for other people if we don't renounce worldly power. Our text told us today that Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Make a decision today. In faith, decide that it is better to live by the power of the Spirit than by the means and modes of power this world offers. Lord, help us to see that we, like Paul, are people marked by weakness, fear, and trembling, that we might live in the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you stand as we prepare to respond now? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.